listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. But this week we'll be continuing in John chapter 6 by picking up where Greg left off in verse 35 and going all the way through verse 51. For anyone taking notes, the title is The Sufficient and Satisfying Bread of Life. Now, runner-up was How to Get That Bread, with Jesus in brackets, but this title seemed a bit more fitting for the thing in general. So last week, we left off with Pastor Greg taking us through Jesus walking on the water to Capernaum, and also what happened afterwards when the crowd followed him there. They saw Jesus, and with that, they also saw an opportunity to try and feed their appetites. Though not necessarily an appetite for Christ as the Son of God, that wasn't really their focus. Really, their focus was kind of like when you go to the store without a list, and you're also really hungry. Anyone who's been in that situation knows that whenever it does happen, it can turn into a free-for-all pretty quickly. All of a sudden, everything sounds good, and you lose focus on whatever your meal plan is that you're there for, and odds are you're going to leave forgetting at least one of the important things you needed to get. You know, you walk out with chips and a box of those snack cakes that you haven't had in years, and then you realize you completely forgot to get breakfast. So that kind of focus, the kind that looks to satisfy cravings in the moment, is the focus that the Jews had. We see in verse 26 that they came to Jesus because they had their fill of the loaves. And then in verses 30 and 31, we see them trying to get Jesus to satisfy their wants for manna, like their fathers had, though they wouldn't be against something better than manna either. They also wanted Jesus to satisfy their wants for a meal, and more than likely, many meals, Because when we go back to verse 15, we see that they wanted Jesus to satisfy their wants for a political king. But Jesus wasn't there simply to satisfy their wants. And from the verses today, we'll see that in the face of the crowds expressed wants, Jesus meets them by teaching them of a much greater need that they have. A need that can only be fulfilled in Christ. And Christ's role is a bread that ultimately nourishes. A bread that endures to eternal life a bread given by God the Father from heaven that the world may have life. Jesus will explain that he is the sufficient and satisfying bread of life, and we'll explore all that by looking at the significance of the bread of life in verses 35 through 40. We'll looking at the response by the Jews and from Jesus in verses 41 through 48, and then we'll end with the firm reassurance of Christ in verses 49 through 51. So read with me. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will of him who has sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because they said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. God, we come to you this morning. And as we're about to go into this passage, God, I just pray that you would help us to be open and receptive to you. That you would lay this word on our hearts and let it be a way that we can push into you, that we can learn from you, and that we can ultimately learn to glorify you better. pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So we're going to start off by looking at the significance of the bread of life in verses 35 through 40. So in verse 35, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This verse is the first of seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And while there's a few different ways to start unpacking this verse, I really want to narrow in on why bread. So in making this statement and claim about being the solution to hunger and thirst, Why is Christ likening himself to bread of all things? Now, as we're going into this, I do want to be clear. Just like the woman at the well, where Jesus talked about being the living water, we're not referring to a physical hunger and thirst in these verses. Rather, the bread is symbolic in the hunger being referred to as a spiritual hunger, a deep longing and emptiness that's felt when Christ is absent. With that in mind, let's dive into the significance of Christ as the bread of life. And we'll look at that through four points that theologian James Montgomery Boyce offered as insight into why bread would hold such a special significance. First, bread is necessary for life. And I know I already have some of you with me here. But in Christ's time, bread was a staple and an essential part of many people's diets. It's a cheaper food that still had the ability to sustain life, and many people relied on it to survive. So with that, when Jesus says that he's the bread of life, he's saying that he is someone that people can't do without. Without Christ, people will be and will stay spiritually dead. It doesn't matter what other things they try to use. By saying he's the bread of life, Christ is saying he's necessary for life and attempting to use anything else will ultimately result in death. So the first reason bread is significant is it's representing the necessity of Christ. A second reason bread is significant is that bread is suited for everyone. And yes, I even mean for those with gluten allergies who are on keto. I've seen the gluten-free buns, and if there's one thing people on keto are good at, it's finding substitutes for recipes they aren't supposed to eat on keto. So in Christ's time, bread was one of the few things that was affordable. Unlike meat and many other foods we have more readily accessible today, bread was something that anyone had access to. So with it being one of the few foods that's widely available to people, this means that when Christ says he's the bread of life, he's saying he's significant to anyone's life and perfectly suited for their needs. So to that end, we need to avoid the trap of thinking that Jesus is suited for some people but not others, because ultimately we are all God's creation and made in his image. Though sometimes we may lose sight of that or let that take a backseat in how we think of others. For example, Christ is suited for Jew and Gentile. That's not something that's as controversial to us today, but the distinction alone had people saying Christ is for some and not others throughout the entirety of the Bible. And then thinking what that might more look like today. So are there people that we unconsciously or consciously think that Christ isn't as suited for? Or who aren't as deserving of Christ? 
Or maybe even if we don't believe it, do we act like there are people who aren't as immediately deserving of Christ because of who they are or what they've done? If we ever catch ourselves in that spot, we need to be careful. We need to repent and remember that we're really no better and that the work of Christ is sufficient and suited to every person. And then just as Christ is suited to every person, we must also remember that Christ is suited to every need of every person. It's another common trap to act like Christ is more suited for one thing than others in our lives. We may experience this in work, in our families, in hobbies, in really anything we could apply ourselves to. But we have to remember that Christ is equally relevant and suited to meet the needs in any arena of life. Any arena of life is an opportunity to glorify God, and there's nothing that Christ isn't qualified or suited to speak into. He should permeate all of those parts of our life. So bread is necessary for life and it's suited for everyone. And this is used as an illustration to say that Christ is necessary for life and suited for all people. But it doesn't stop there. A third reason bread was significant is that bread should be eaten daily. Like I said before, bread was a staple of the diet and it was likely eaten every day. It was a source of nourishment that people returned to. So likewise with Christ as the bread of life, we should be feeding on him daily. And this isn't to say that Christ is insufficient in some way, and that's why we have to come to him daily. More so, this is pointing to the nature of living a Christian life once we come to Christ. Living as a Christian isn't a one-and-done sort of thing where we get saved and then go back to things as usual. It's continually returning to Christ as our sustenance through all things. And feeding on him daily cares for our bodies and our souls, and we're dependent on that nourishment. So what does that feeding look like? It's the second part of verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So it's continually coming to Christ for nourishment and continually believing in him that he is sufficient in all things. And it's realizing that the nourishment we seek from anywhere else is insufficient to meet those. And we struggle with this. And by saying we, I mean all of us, myself included, We struggle to feed on Christ daily, and we struggle to live out coming to and believing in him that we may be nourished and never hunger or thirst. How often do we feed on things other than Christ? Maybe it's achievement. Maybe it's relationship. Maybe it's happiness. Maybe it's love, friendship. Maybe it's what we can buy, the things we have. The list goes on for a while. But how often do we fail to come to Christ for things going on in our lives? How often do we try to do things in our own power and by our own ability before we come to Christ, if we do it all, and feed on our own power? And how often do we come to Christ but then struggle to believe how he nourishes us? We hold on to sin and shame, the inadequacy of our works, as a condemnation and disqualification of the life Christ gives even though we're just imposing that on ourselves. Christian, we cannot live this way. It should be heartbreaking when we see a brother or sister in the faith who does not feed on the Lord daily. It should be heartbreaking to see them starving and suffering because they haven't come to the Lord in his word, even as they ail and hurt under the brokenness of sin. It should be heartbreaking to see brothers and sisters who come to Christ but then fail to believe in his provision and promises and nourishment. They come to the word as a sponge that's dried out and hardened, thirsting for the nourishment that Christ provides, 
longing to soak up the life-giving word, but as they look at the oasis of the word, they hold themselves back because they struggle to believe that a nourishment like that would be available for someone like them. They buy into lies and don't believe that they could ever deserve what Christ provides. Isn't that heartbreaking to you? And isn't it heartbreaking to realize that that's us too? That's what we do to ourselves when we fail to feed on Christ, the bread of life, daily. Christ as the bread of life is necessary. He is suited for all people, and he needs to be fed on daily. And the fourth reason Christ may have chosen bread is that bread produces growth. Bread doesn't just meet baseline needs, but it helps to nourish in a way that lets us grow. And I'm not just talking about whenever you eat a bunch of carbs before you weigh yourself for the week. With that in mind, feeding on Jesus as the bread of life, feeding on his promises and what he's done are key to growing spiritually. Now this may seem like a, well yeah, duh, sort of statement, but it's hard to grow as a Christian without going to Christ. That should seem pretty straightforward. But it does get overlooked to different degrees for many reasons including that we look to other sources, just like we feed on other things. This may be through man. And that's not even through a negative thing. This could be a mentor, a pastor, a theologian. It may look like our own experiences and wisdom. And while those aren't inherently bad and can even be good, we have to avoid the temptation to put too much stock in man as the ultimate source of authority. Man can point us to Christ, but man is not the nourishment we need. Like it says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 7. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Ultimately, it's God who nourishes us and grows us, not man. And another common source that we seek today is the created rather than the creator. This can look like a love and desire for physical things like money, land, possession, or things that can be status and the power we've built for ourselves in our own little kingdoms. This can also look like non-physical things that God's given us, things like emotions, relationship, success, specific character traits and abilities. Now, to be clear, these physical and non-physical things God's provided with us aren't bad. In fact, many times they are blessings given us to, to us by God for the purpose of being a blessing to the nations. God provides us with things like money and food and a house so that we can steward those and bless others. And a healthy desire for relationship lets us move towards others and be in life together. But the problem is when these things become disordered in our lives, and instead of those being a means to the end of glorifying God and making his name known, they become twisted for our own glory. God becomes the means, and the created becomes the end goal. But a life of seeking creation as the end goal will not fulfill you in any meaningful way. It may seem to for a time, but as the momentary satisfaction inevitably wanes, you'll be left with the same gnawing emptiness. Or, if anything, that emptiness may grow and demand to be satisfied in grander ways, as if that's the solution. (laughs) But we know from the life of King Solomon that that's not true either. 
Anything we could ever want, he's done bigger and better than we ever could. And even he found it all meaningless. So that's why we must seek growth in Christ. He's the only one who can provide nourishment that lets us grow. And as we seek Christ in order to grow as a Christian, we can trust that God will satisfy our spiritual needs and our earthly needs too. God cares about our physical needs. I mean, his divine plan includes restoring our souls and our bodies. And God promises to meet our earthly needs. He is good in giving that provision, even if it doesn't always look like we expect. But our first priority must always be focusing on Christ and the glory due him as the bread of life. And that's where our focus should be for growth too. So the long story long is there's a lot of significance with Jesus claiming to be the bread of life in the passage. And as we head into the rest of this passage, this will be helpful to understanding all that's about to be said. As we move forward, keep in mind that as Jesus says he is the bread of life that comes down from heaven, he's saying that he, Jesus, is necessary for life. That he is suitable for everyone and their needs. That he should be returned to daily for nourishment and that he is a source of fulfillment and growth. And now that we know the significance of Christ as the bread of life, let's move into who can partake of the bread of life. How that happens and Christ promises to those who believe in the rest of verses 35 through 40. Also, for anyone looking at their watch and going, oh my gosh, it's been 15 minutes, and we've just been talking about bread this entire time, don't worry, I'm not going for any sort of record, and it does pick up a bit from here. So who can partake in the bread of life? Look with me at verses 35 and 36. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Here Jesus tells us how we can eat the bread of life. It's not a physical eating. Rather, eating the bread of life looks like coming to Christ and believing in him. And that's the problem that the Galileans were having. It's why they missed the point that Christ is making. They never truly came to him. If you look at chapter 6, verse 2, we see that the crowd first came to Christ on the mountain because of the signs they saw. But then when they came across the sea in verse 26, we see that they came not even for the signs, but because they'd eaten their fill. Their focus kept on shifting and moving further and further away from the divinity of Christ. Now for sure they saw Christ as a mighty man, a potential king, and a source of physical bread and earthly power. As D.A. Carson put it, this crowd has witnessed the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. They came to Christ, but they didn't truly come to him as the Son of God. And they didn't believe that he was the Son who is perfectly expressing the will of the Father. And without that changing, they were bound to continue operating from a place of unbelief. So that begs the question then, how do we truly come to and believe in Christ? How can that happen that we can partake of the bread of life? The first part of verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. We could stop here, and there is so much to that. That is such a rich statement. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And in terms of how do we come to and believe in Christ, this verse tells us that it's through the work of God the Father. Basically, God draws us to himself, and he does this by drawing or giving us to Christ. And to that point, there are some important things to note about the wording of this part of the verse. First, the word all doesn't refer to every single person. 
but it refers to the group collectively that God draws to himself. So these are the elect people that God the Father works in that they would be able to come and believe in Christ. Next, I want to draw attention to the words, gives me. Notice what this phrase says, what it doesn't say, and the implications. What this says is that it's the action of the Father that brings people to Christ. Christ isn't going out and getting all the people himself. He's simply waiting for whoever the Father comes and gives to him. And what this verse doesn't say is that it's our own actions that let us come to Christ. The implication being we can't draw ourselves to Christ and we especially can't earn our way to Christ. Rather, we must rely on the work of God the Father in our heart that we may then choose to come to and believe in Christ. Now I want to point out the word will. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This word indicates the certainty of both God the Father and the Son. Christ is certain that all who the Father works in will come. Not that all might come, or that some might come, but that all will come. And in that vein, that means that anyone that the Father works in will certainly come to Christ. Now they may come slowly or quickly. They may come begrudgingly or earnestly. They may come at an old age or a young age. We don't know the when, where, or the how of what it will look, but it's certain that those that the Father gives will come. Now just for a second, how amazing is that? What does it look like to rest in that truth? Because as Christians, we should be hugely comforted and encouraged by that statement. It means that God is sovereign and that his will can never be frustrated by man. They will It's a certainty. It's not an if, but a when. And what will they do? They will come to Christ. The word come here means to have faith in Jesus. And what does that faith look like? It's not a blind faith, but a faith founded in the full knowledge of truth. It's a faith that believes in Christ, who he says he is, what he says he's here to do, and the promises he said he fulfills. It's a faith that trusts Christ and looks to prove his promises. And it's a faith that focuses on Christ and not our own performance. That's what it is to come to Christ and to have faith in him. Our faith isn't vague, and we should remember that and work to always believe that. So this part of 37 is so rich. All that the Father gives will come to me. And from it we know that it's the work of the Father that allows us to come to faith and believe in Christ. And then as a result of coming and believing, we know that Christ will verses 37 through 40, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In these verses, Christ makes many promises for those that come to saving faith in him through the work of the Father, not the least of which is the first promise we see in the rest of verse 37, that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So again, we have such a rich statement that should offer so much encouragement and hope to believers. For those who have saving faith in Christ, for those who come and believe in the bread of life, they will never 
be cast out. Jesus promises to receive everyone who comes to him and trusts in him for salvation. And not only will Christ receive all that the Father gives, but Christ will keep them in, preserve them, and ensure that they will never slip through the cracks or be cast out. And again, we don't know how that will look with them coming. And maybe slowly or begrudgingly, quickly or earnestly, But what we know is regardless of age, socioeconomic status, nation, tribe, tongue, or any other circumstance, Christ will receive you and hold you fast. And Christ will do that because, verse 39, he promises to lose nothing of all that he, the Father, has given him. Verse 39 builds on verse 37 by further clarifying that Christ will never cast out, and in doing that he will lose nothing that the Father gives him. We also know from verses 38 and 39 that Jesus' motivation in doing this is to carry out the will of the Father who sent him from heaven. It's the Father's will that we should be saved to Christ. And in being saved to Christ, we are assured that Jesus will keep us and that we will never be lost to anyone or anything. I won't read it all here, but we do see further evidence of that in Romans 8, 35, and then verses 37 through 39. But we see that not sin, not physical suffering, not the existence of supernatural powers and the work of the enemy can separate us from God. We are all equally in his care, and just because we may feel far from the Lord doesn't ever mean that he's actually far from us. And that assurance isn't just for the present, it's for our future too. As we move into verse 40, we see another part of the Father's will that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Now it's worth noting that eternal life here doesn't simply mean an unending existence. It's specifically referencing moving from condemnation to acceptance and moving from death to life. And through the work of the Father to draw us to him, Christ will hold us in acceptance and life. This is the life that Jesus is promising for those who come and believe for those who eat of the bread of life. This is the life that they are assured. And the obedience of the Son is assured by the will of the Father. Now, if Christ failed to be obedient to the Father in this, everything would fall apart. If Christ failed to preserve anyone or cast someone out, it would make him incapable or disobedient to the Father and it would be to the eternal shame of the Son. However, Because of Christ's obedience, through his persevering, preserving, and keeping what the Father has given him, and through his bringing of those who come to eternal life, there's no eternal shame. Rather, there's an eternal glory to the work of the Father and the Son. That's the satisfaction in life that we have in Christ. Through his work to honor and be obedient to the will of the Father, Christ is the bread that will give life to those who come and believe in him, meet the needs of those who he holds and keeps, that will be there to return to and feed on for the nourishment from day to day as he preserves us, and Christ will continually continue alongside us as we grow until we are finally raised up on the last day. All this through the work of Christ and his obedience to the Father. Jesus Christ is the heaven-sent sufficient bread of life, and there should be so much joy and hope in celebrating in what's been said. But even as Jesus worked to teach and lay out all these things, as we continue on, we'll find that the Jews' response was grumbling and a little off the mark. And we see the responses in verses 41 and 42. 
So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? At some point in this chapter, Greg had mentioned it last week, but we transition from Jesus talking to the open crowds to Jesus teaching at the synagogue. So we aren't for sure, but the Galilean Jews we see in this passage may have been the synagogue congregation or even its leaders. But regardless of where they were, the important thing to note is that the Jews' response to Jesus' statements wasn't joy. It was grumbling. Their grumbling marked the confusion, the protest, and the resentment they had towards Christ at his claims. And it marked a spirit in them that's the same as their Old Testament fathers in the wilderness. That grumbled all the time. And what's really kind of funny to know is that the Jews' main problem wasn't with what Jesus taught on being the bread of life. Their main beef was with Jesus' claim to have come down from heaven. Their main criticism was Jesus' origins. They wanted to deny Christ's divine heritage on the basis of claiming to know his earthly parents. Like, no, this is Joseph and Mary's kid. They also didn't like the idea that Jesus may have seemed to be claiming a nobler heritage than they believed that he had. So, in not understanding, they did what we see all too commonly and just tried to discount him by criticizing Christ's person. They didn't understand where Christ was from, and they didn't care to really ask into it either. But in response, Jesus does what he's done best, that he's done many times before, and he ignores it. He doesn't waste time responding to the accusations because he's focused and he returns to teaching. Verses 43 through 48. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. We start this section in verse 43 with Jesus telling them, Do not grumble among yourselves. But he doesn't spend time debating who his parents are. Instead, he gives direction to not grumble and then spends the following verses by restating what he said up to this point in verses 35 through 40. The one thing to note is that in this recap, Christ used much sharper language and is very straightforward in what he's saying. He is giving a direct reminder of the situation. Verse 44, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we have all that same significant language from before, but there's the addition of this negative tense phrase of no one, as opposed to in verse 37 where it says, all that the Father gives me. By doing this, Jesus is saying that the only way to come to Christ is through the drawing of the Father. There is no other way. Man can't talk himself into it. Man can't reason himself into it. There is no authority outside of the Father that can accomplish this work. And for those that the Father works in, we see in the rest of verse 44 that I will raise him up on the last day. Christ will keep us and will not lose anything that the Father gives him, that he may raise it up. Then verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they will... All be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is an explanation further illustrating how the Father draws people. In this verse, we have a reference to Isaiah 54, 13, 
And it's a paraphrase where it says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. To illustrate how God's working within people to draw them. And then Christ moves on to verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. We have not and cannot see God the Father in a complete way the sight of heaven. And Christ was reminding them of this. But we do get a picture of him in Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the one who has seen the Father. And for those who come to faith in Jesus, there will come a day when we'll be able to behold God in all his glory and splendor. And we know that that day will come because Christ tells us in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. There is eternal life for those who will come and believe. And again, this isn't just a forever existence. This is a moving from condemnation to acceptance. A moving from being dead in sin to receiving life in Christ. And there is a promise that will be held until that day when our bodies and souls will be restored, that we may give eternal glory to God. We'll be able to see him in that when the day comes, we can stand before him in glory instead of in fear and in judgment from being outside of Christ. This is the will of God. This is what God has in store for those he draws to himself through Christ. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Jesus gives this summation as an ending to all that he started saying in verse 35. Christ is the bread of life that you must come and believe in. And this statement serves a dual purpose. First, it serves as an invitation. It's an invitation to come and believe in the only bread that can truly satisfy. An invitation to come and feed on Christ that we may be nourished and grow. And an invitation to humbly come by the grace of the Father, knowing that Christ is the only way to the Father. This claim, I am the bread of life, also serves as a warning. It's a warning against unbelief. It's a warning against seeking satisfaction and fulfillment from anything other than Christ. And a warning against trying to come to belief through anything other than the work of the Father. This is Jesus' response to the grumbling of the Jews. And as we head into the last few verses, we'll see that he doesn't stop there. Rather, Christ gives a firm reassurance of his purpose and mission as the bread of life. Verses 49 through 51. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. Jesus starts in verse 49 by contrasting the Old Testament manna and the bread of life that he's talking about. He's giving a stark reminder to not work for the food that perishes. Because while manna sustains natural life, it doesn't give eternal life. On the other hand, verse 50, the bread of life is from heaven, and those who eat of it are assured eternal life. With that in mind, we should work for the bread of life. We should eat of it that we may live and grow. We need that bread because we can't live without it. It's the only nourishment that can sufficiently satisfy our deepest needs and longings. And in verse 51, Jesus reminds us that he is that living bread. He is the one who came down from heaven. And he is the one that we must eat of, that we may live forever. Christ was sent from heaven by the Father to carry out the Father's will, to save and give eternal life to those who would come and believe, 
And to that end, in order to give this kind of life to the world, Christ says he'll give his flesh. We won't get into it today. That's part of the next John sermon. But we'll see that Christ's statement of giving his flesh will, surprise, surprise, confuse the Jews. And they'll continue to miss the mark a little bit. But what's clear to us today is that Jesus was talking about the cross. Jesus was talking about being the sacrificial servant that would voluntarily give himself for the life of the world. And the life that Christ gives to the world is through eating of him as the bread of life. Now in all the passages we've gone over today, James Montgomery Boyce wrote, Have you ever thought about all that grain must pass through before it becomes bread? It must first be planted and then grow. When it is ripe, it must be cut down, winnowed, ground into flour. Finally, it must be subjected to the fiery heat of the oven. Only by this process does it become able to sustain life. This is what happened to Lord Jesus Christ in order that he might become your bread. He was born into this world. He was bruised. He was cut down by sinful men. He passed through the fires of God's holy wrath as he took your place in judgment. This is his glory. He suffered this for you. How then can you refuse to feed on him? Christian, you must feed on Christ and Christ alone. Don't starve yourself of the nourishment you need to face all that life holds. Come to Christ that you may never hunger. And as you come, believe in his promises so that you may never thirst. Drink of Christ's promises and rest in the daily provision of God's grace and mercy and work, knowing that God's will is perfectly fulfilled in Christ. That through Jesus you are held fast and preserved in eternal life. Eat and rest in the sufficient and satisfying bread of life. And if you aren't a believer, Christ's invitation stands. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the only one that can satisfy the deepest needs and longings of your soul. Maybe you feel God drawing you towards him. Maybe you feel the pull to come to Christ. And if that's the case, then please, come. Eat freely and be nourished by the sufficient and satisfying bread of life.